Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Remain standing, would you please, as we turn to our passage for our look at God's Word together this morning, and that's Matthew chapter 12, um, beginning in verse 9 and and. Continuing on through verse 21, the word of the Lord. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and it concerns the living word, the one who brought justice to victory, and who, Father, leads us to victory as we trust in him and and follow in his footsteps. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will give your word unusual power in our lives, not just today, but throughout this season of Advent. In the coming days, Father, as we consider the glory of Jesus and and you're giving them to us. Father, we pray that this, this morning as we look at your word, that my words may not be mere words, but that they may be accompanied by the Spirit and therefore have power and bring conviction. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a passage that is, in some respects, to my mind, fascinating because it's a picture of the loyalty of Jesus' followers to him even as it's a picture of what drives that loyalty. So it shows the loyalty, it shows the Lord who is the one who receives the loyalty, it shows Jesus as a leader who who brings about a following of absolutely devoted men and women. And it begins as uh, as all such endeavors do, Wherever there is leadership that engenders loyalty, wherever there is something going on where a leader brings about a a following that is a loyal and devoted following, you have at the nub of it a conflict. There's, There's always conflict. Leadership is all about conflict. And there is loyalty when there is conflict, just as there's rejection. And so conflict is the, it's the material of leadership. The raw material out of which leadership is forged. We see that here with Jesus Christ. Jesus has just said that the Son of Man is the Lord 
of the Sabbath. That's verse 8, immediately preceding our passage. He has stated that in the midst of a conflict with the Pharisees over his disciples who are walking through the fields with him on the Lord's on the Sabbath and eating grain that they pick along the way. And they're being criticized by the Pharisees for doing that. Jesus returns the criticism and says, look, if you really understood the Lord, you'd know that he desires compassion and not a sacrifice and you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. And then he concludes that by saying, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And that theme of Sabbath continues here because Jesus goes on from that confrontation into the synagogue of the region and there again is confronted with a situation which calls into question his authority and his ability to do as he said to define what is Sabbath day observance. It would, it would be anything, it could have been any principle that Jesus stood on that uh, offended the Pharisees, it just happens to alight on the Sabbath. You know, it's like where the die is cast and it, it lands on Sabbath. And so that's where the fight is. And we see this throughout his life. Now, Sabbath is something, it's a principle that is important to God. And it's a principle on which the Pharisees were, were acknowledged by the Jews, at least, as the, as the masters. They were the masters of the Sabbath. They were the ones who said what you should do on the Sabbath. They were the lords of the Sabbath. They were the ones who would define whether it was right or wrong to do something on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, I'm not. I, you're not the Lord of the Sabbath. I am. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are going, what? Yeah. No, you're not. Again, it could have been anywhere. But this is where the die fell. The Sabbath. And so they hate him for the Sabbath. They hate him for a lot of reasons. Essentially, they hate him because he's claiming authority. And he is denying their authority. And this is always the way that it goes with leadership. This is always the way that a leader is, <laughs> is established. It's through a conflict over authority. And there are always those who are opposing leaders. And they may not even know that they're opposing a leader. These men think that they're the leaders. They don't understand that Jesus is the leader. And honestly, this is the way it is in our lives as we, as we are called to follow the leadership of Jesus. We don't even acknowledge he's the leader. We just know that he's saying something we don't like. And so we fight it. And so in our lives, many of us, we don't even know that Jesus is claiming lordship over us or that he is the Lord. All we know is that he's saying things through others, through, by himself, through his word, through his Holy Spirit in our lives. We don't like it. And, and we're saying, oh, who are you? What, what right do you have to, to dictate to me? And we are not saying it directly to Jesus, of course. At this point in time, no one says directly to Jesus, who are you? But we're saying to his messengers. We're saying it to the people who speak to us. We're saying, what right do you have? Who do you think you are? And in that conflict, the authority of Jesus is established. And in that conflict, the reality of rebellion is established. And that's what we're seeing here. It's over the Sabbath. It's over the Sabbath. And as Jesus fights the scribes and the Pharisees, in particular, here are the Pharisees, over the meaning of the Sabbath and how it's to be observed and what right he has to say this is okay on the Sabbath and this is not, in that conflict, Jesus engenders loyalty. He brings about a following that is arch-committed to him. Men and women who will follow him. 
because they saw him fight. But he didn't fight as normal men fight. You've got to remember that he fights as the Lord. And, and the Lord does not get down into the dirt. He simply speaks and calls. And we'll see that as we go on. And Jesus is clearly engaging in conflict here. But he is also a gentle master, a merciful Lord. And when Isaiah says a, a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out. That's how he leads. He will not quarrel. He will not cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. And so if you're at war with Jesus, don't expect him to do like Mike Tyson did to, what is it, Ray Jones last night? And to batter you until you say, ah, he's not going to do that. It's not how he establishes his leadership. He is insistent. He keeps coming at you. He keeps speaking to you. But you understand that in the sovereignty of God, your will is never violated. God never grabs you and say, says, this way I force you and you go against your will with God. God always works in a way in his sovereignty that your will is not violated. Whether your will is sin or your will is righteousness, God is leading you. And it is entirely your will. And you can't say, well, God did this. You're doing it. His sovereignty is absolute. It's epic. And it respects your person. And it never violates your will. All right? So he's fighting you. And you don't even realize he's fighting you. He's pushing you. He's leading you. He's challenging you. And you think you're dealing with other things, and you absolutely want what you do, whatever it may be. So we see Jesus here, and he is working with these men, and they have no respect for him. And that's why we're going to see, as we go further in the chapter, he warns about, about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But even as he is turning off the Pharisees and the scribes, he's turning on certain others, um, in particular his followers, his disciples, and these are men, one of them is the author of this passage, Matthew. Matthew is here, Matthew is a follower, Matthew writes this, and I think we see the loyalty of Matthew to his Savior in the very way he approaches this event. We'll, we'll see that in a moment. Jesus is, is calling men to follow him as he goes through life, and he has already sent out his men and he's told them that they're to go out and they're to go as he went. What are they to do? Well, they're to preach repentance. He tells his disciples that they're to go out and they're to preach repentance. That's not a fun thing to do. And he tells them when they go out and preach repentance that they shouldn't take an extra purse, don't take money, don't take a staff. Go and depend on the people that you're going to, to, to support you. If they're worthy, they'll support you. If not, move on to another town. So he's obviously understand that there will be opposition, that people won't like his disciples, that they're going to run into people who will dislike them. And then he says if that's the case... Dust on your feet, knock it off, and move on, and God will deal with that town. So he's sending them into conflict. He's sending them with a message that's a difficult message to declare. Repent. Repent. Not an easy message to go out and, and carry. Repent. He's sending them with, with as he went, he was uh, 
the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Foxes have lairs. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So he's sending them out without means of earthly support. And they're going. This is the thing that, that grabs you. They're going. They're doing it. And they come back rejoicing. It's not an easy thing. He sends them out. He calls them to preach and to preach repentance. He himself is in danger. And we see it in the passage with the people wanting to destroy him. That's literal destruction. And he places his followers in danger and yet they're willing to walk with him. Remember that at, towards the end as Jesus sets his face like flint to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem knowing he's going to die. And all along the way warning his disciples he's going to die. Thomas says to the other disciples, well, what are we going to do? We may as well go and die with him. <laughs> that's, that's fanatical loyalty. They're even willing to go with him and die. Now as it comes, the fear of death strikes them and they all sort of fall away. But they are willing to follow Jesus even to Jerusalem. And eventually, of course, this loyalty that's, that's brought about by the leadership of Jesus in these conflicts leads each of the disciples, we believe except John, to a, to a martyr's death. And so they do actually give their lives for this leader. They engage in conflict as he engaged in conflict. They pay for the conflict with their blood and their lives as he paid for it. And they are loyal. Jesus creates loyalty. And it's a testimony to the character of this man, Jesus Christ. This God, this man, that he keeps all his disciples except Judas fully with him. And Judas was appointed to that end. And he went to that end by his will. Keeps them with him fully throughout all his years of ministry. And even into the future after he's gone away from them into heaven. And his loyalty to them and their loyalty to him is one of the great proofs of his, of his lordship. No one holds to someone who's a loser, a charlatan, a fake after that person dies. These men hold to Jesus. They hold and hold and hold for years and decades and then they die for him. So what is it about him, his leadership, that inspires such loyalty? Loyalty in life, loyalty after he dies and is resurrected, loyalty in the life to come when he has gone from them into heaven, loyalty when they face death. Well, we see in this passage an example of that loyalty. Matthew describes the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees in the synagogue over whether he's going to heal this man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. It's not his first conflict with the Pharisees over the Sabbath, but it is the deepest and the most consequential of them all. Because when they leave this conflict, they leave it vowing to destroy him. Gospel of Mark tells us that when the Pharisees left this confrontation in the synagogue, they went out and conspired with the Herodians as to how together they could destroy Jesus. Now, Pharisees... And Herodians at most times are oil and water. But they are united in their hatred of the authority of Jesus Christ. And they make common cause to kill him. Now Jesus leaves the confrontation over this man with a withered hand. And whether it's okay to heal on the Sabbath. And he goes to a more remote area. 
Jesus, Matthew tells us, went away from that area. Literally, Matthew says, he went away or withdrew from it. Mark tells us Jesus went to the sea from this confrontation. So evidently he was inland. That sea would be the Sea of Galilee. It seems likely that he went to the far north of the Sea of Galilee, the area that wasn't really inhabited. It was sort of like a middle land in between the Galilee and, and the, the Decapolis, the ten cities on the other side. It was kind of up by Caesarea and it was not an, a really inhabited area. It was more of a wilderness. Mark says he went there, and when he went, a great multitude from Galilee, that's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea. Judea is far to the south of this region, at least 100 miles. In other words, for people walking, a many-day journey. So a great multitude from Galilee, which is right next door, followed. And also from Judea, way south. And from Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Judea. And from Idumea. Idumea is named after uh, the Edomites. And it was way to the south. If Jerusalem was far from this region, Idumea is that much further south of Jerusalem. And it goes way down at the bottom of this Dead Sea, goes on really on either side of the Dead Sea. This area would include what we know as Petra in Jordan today. So they're following Jesus from the west side of the Sea of Galilee, right up by where he is, all the way down to the end of the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan River to Jerusalem, which is way down the Jordan River, and then even farther down, all the way down to the south end of the Dead Sea, which is Hundreds of miles away. They're following. And they're taking horses or camels. They're taking donkeys. They're walking. They come from these distant multitudes. He is inspiring. But not just from these areas, we read, and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan, Mark says. Beyond the Jordan, which would be on the east side of the Jordan River. Modern day Jordan, way down to where the Nabataeans are and Petra, all the way down to that region. And the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. So we're going north at this point. From where he is, we're going north and west to the seacoast to Phoenicia. It's an absolutely Gentile land. Of these places that are mentioned here, Galilee is is Jewish. Judea is Jewish. Jerusalem is Jewish. Idumea, mixed Jewish and Gentile. Beyond the Jordan is Gentile. Tyre, Sidon, absolutely Gentile. All these areas... That they're spoken of at the end of this are Gentile, Gentile areas. The sea is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is on the north and he's attracting people from all around. And Matthew foresees as he relates this, that Jesus does this, potential objections. The first potential objection that Matthew foresees as he finishes this story and starts to tell about where Jesus goes on to and what he does after leaving the the conflict with the Pharisees is is that Jesus withdrew from there. Has the sense of of of, of not defeat but of abandonment. He left there. He has the conflict and he leaves. So he leaves and then he goes to the north. He goes and he's surrounded by people who are Gentiles. 
Matthew foresees potential objections. Why does he leave the Jews? Is he frightened? Why does he go to the Gentiles? What is he doing? And there, <coughs> we read, as he ministers to the multitudes, he tells them not to tell people who he is. What are you scared of, Jesus? Matthew understands Jesus could be accused at this point of running, deserting his people. And he is unwilling to have any evil thought of Jesus come out at all. And so, in his loyalty, he explains why Jesus did this. And he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through, the, through Isaiah the prophet. And he tells them, hey, he tells his readers, his audience, hey, don't think Jesus was cutting and running. Don't think that Jesus was doing something that was untoward in any way. Don't think that he was a coward. He quotes Isaiah to explain why Jesus does this. Now notice that in the quote from Isaiah, which we find in verses 18 through 21 of Matthew 12, that in the beginning of the quote, and again in verse 21, at the end, Isaiah specifically speaks of Jesus going to the Gentiles. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That's verse 18, 21. And in his name, the Gentiles shall hope. Even in his life, even in that life where he said to the Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman, I came for the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel, even... In that life, when he sent his disciples out and said, don't go to anything but the tribes of Israel, Jesus went to the Gentiles. Jesus gathered the Gentiles in accord with the word of God. He is, to use the words of Matthew, quoting Isaiah, proclaiming justice to the Gentiles. What does it mean that he's proclaiming justice? This word does not mean judgment. It's not a statement that he's proclaiming God's wrath. It is not a word that can be tied to justification. It doesn't mean that. It's more general. The meaning is his reign of justice. This term means an administration of justice. He's saying justice has come. A just reign, a just rule, a just kingdom has come. To the Gentiles, he's revealing his own authority of justice, teaching them his kingdom's nature and character. Now, Matthew connects Jesus' healing of the man with the withered hand, and the conflict spawned with, with Jesus' declaration of divine justice to the Gentiles for two reasons. The first has to do with the Sabbath itself. The hypocrisy of Jew Jewish Sabbath practice has been a cause for ridicule of the Jews for centuries, actually millennia. It's done today, and it was done back in their day. Conservatives, Jews, still today, will hire a Gentile, a person that they'll call literally their Sabbath goy, their Sabbath Gentile, to do the work in their homes that their traditions and their rules say are not allowed on the Sabbath. And of course, this is flagrant hypocrisy, right? Because what does the commandment, the fourth commandment that forbids work on the Sabbath say? You are not to do any work. You are not allowed to do work, neither shall your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant. 
nor even your cattle, nor the stranger within your gates. But they hire a Gentile and say, you do the work. And people look at that and they say, okay, this Sabbath is laughable. God says no one is to work, but they hire people to work so their hands are clean. And they have added a thousand little ridiculous rules to define that work. They invent ways of circumventing then the rules that they make. And it is absolutely ludicrous and hypocritical. And it remains that today. Now in the day of COVID when temperatures are needed to be taken before people can enter the hospital. This is what the rabbis, the Orthodox rabbis say about taking temperatures on the Sabbath in the entryway of the hospital. Regarding heat measurement that is done to enter the gates of hospitals. I mean this is as current as yesterday. Regarding heat measurement done to enter the gates of hospitals in public places such as guest houses, etc., there are concerns about the prohibition of work on Shabbat in both the heat measurement and in the writing that's generated on the monitor. You understand, both the, the measuring and the writing of the measurement on a monitor are violations of the Sabbath. There is a prohibition, both when the heat measurement is done manually by the guard at the entrance, as well as where there is a thermal camera system that detects all comers and their image and degree of heat are displayed on a screen. Therefore, there is no permission to enter these places on the Sabbath, but only in cases of fear of danger in which the laws of halakha allow to desecrate the Sabbath and not for the mere visit of sick patients, etc. And the right way to enter hospitals is to allow a nakri, a non-Jew, to perform the tests. And in this way, you can even enter when there's no danger to the patient. To any Gentile, the idea that you wouldn't heal a man on the Sabbath because doing so constitutes work and violates the Sabbath is ludicrous. Ludicrous. Just one more reason for scorning the Jews. Their petty rules, their vapid hypocrisies, their insanity, they make they make the Amish with all their rules and the ways that they can and can't use electricity. They make them look like reasonable people. And remember, the Sabbath is a universal principle. Gentiles observed a day of rest just as the Jews did. It was established at the, the very beginning of creation by God. Universal. Back in the time of the French Revolution, the revolutionaries tried to establish a decimal week, a 10-day week, and it, it lasted about as long as the revolution. The seven-day week with a day of rest has been observed in cultures around the world forever. It has been observed almost universally. Where there is a calendar, it's understood in this way. And so in bringing God's commands and wishes and divine light back to bear on the Sabbath and attacking the ridiculous pedophagery of the Pharisees who say, you can and can't, you can and can't, you should get an ochre to do it, you'd better not allow it to appear on a screen because that breaks the Sabbath. Jesus is declaring the justice of God. He's saying God is not like that. God is not like that. God is not a ridiculous God who cares more about whether... Words are written on a screen than if people are healed. He is not like that. Jesus is declaring to everyone, God is not like those jokers make him look. This needs to be happening all the time. Followers of Jesus need to be in conflict with the world saying, God is not the ridiculous God 
that we have made him out to be that you are making him out to be. He is not a ridiculous God. When he demands something, there is logic and reason and power to it. And it is not just stupid, pedophagging concerns. And so Jesus is bringing justice. He's maintaining justice. He's establishing the justice of the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. Nor is Jesus running away from trouble. Matthew quotes Isaiah here to make clear that he wasn't running, but fulfilling prophecy. And that by going to the Gentiles, he was very much doing God's will. In particular, what Matthew wants people to understand is that when Jesus, who says, who Matthew says was aware of this, the, the conspiracy against him, when he withdrew from there, it was not out of cowardice, nor his running in fear, but his fulfilling prophecy and doing the will of his father. And this man who seems to leave at this point because of the, the plotting against him will in a few short months turn his face to Jerusalem and go to Jerusalem with his forehead set like flint to the cross. So I want to list in conclusion a number of reasons why people are loyal to Jesus and why you should be loyal to Jesus. First, the disciples understood and everyone who loved Jesus understood that Jesus was not about himself. Now, this is a foreign concept because I don't know a leader in the church, outside the church, whose leadership is not 80% about himself. And I include myself. Every leader is out to establish his own kingdom. Himself. And Jesus is absolutely unique in that he is not seeking to build his kingdom. But the kingdom of God his father. And it has nothing to do with him. So he's willing to have no place to lay his head. And he's willing to lose disciples when he says unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood he is not about himself he is not about his own ego there is no ego in Jesus there is deity he is God and you'd better deal with that if you're following him or you're or if you are opposing him but it's not about him all through his years with his disciples Jesus says over and over it must be it is written scripture must be fulfilled so much so that the disciples know it. They, they see it. They understand that everything he does was obedience to God. They see his loyalty to the Father. And they are deeply and intensely loyal to him in consequence. This is the problem in the church today. The church today has no one who's loyal to God who's leading. It's just not found. There's no sacrifice. There's no willingness to, to be hated. There's just... It's not there. It's all men who are saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. And God is simply the way that they make their way through the world and establish their leadership just with, with the Pharisees. It's the exact same thing. Do you want people who will follow you? Do you want to be like Jesus? Then fight for the glory of God. Be loyal to God. Stop thinking about yourself. Stop having it be all about you, mothers. It's not about you. 
Fathers, stop thinking that you're the center of your family's universe. You're not. It is about God. Elders, it's about God. Deacons, it's about the will of God. It's not about you. You who want a position and are incensed and upset that you don't have a position. Is it about you or is it about God? You who resent the leadership of the elders or what the pastor has said to you. Is it about you or is it about God? Who is it about? With Jesus, there was never any doubt. It was entirely about God. And therefore, God spoke on a number of occasions and said, this is my son. This is my son. Listen to him. Says it at the baptism. Says it again at the transfiguration. Says it in deeds, if not words, with rumblings and thunderings from heaven when Jesus dies. So that there's an earthquake. So that the centurion says, whoa, this is the son of God. Jesus had followers because in everything he lifted up his father. Father, forgive us for our own pride. Father, kill our pride so that we can lead people. Father, forgive the pride of the fathers here. Forgive the obstinance of the mothers. Forgive my pride. Make us love you. Second, they know Jesus' courage. They follow him. They're so upset. I mean, Matthew is so averse to making it seem like Jesus was a coward and running away that he says, this was to fulfill Isaiah. Don't think he's running. Don't think he's scared. Don't think he's weak. Third, I want to add at this point that they are loyal to Jesus because of his incredible generosity. The generosity of the way he lives. Do you understand that at least there's a hint in this passage of a setup? When he comes to the synagogue, he's just had a conflict with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. He enters the synagogue and there is this man with a withered hand. And they question Jesus asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Was that man with the withered hand brought there by them? They certainly knew he'd be there. Was he an ally of theirs? Was he in on the plot or was he just casually there? It seems it's clear that they knew he would be there when they entered into the, the, the occasion of questioning Jesus. It doesn't seem like it's happenstance that this is coming about. They're waiting, they're watching, they want to know what Jesus will do. They're looking for reasons to accuse. Seems they've set a trap, and that trap is baited by the man. Whether he is conscious of his being used as bait or not, we don't know for certain. But he's at least an unwitting ally of the Pharisees, because through him they intend to make their attack on Jesus. Is he innocent? Who can know? It's clear that he's there, that he has a need. It's clear that he would obviously like to have his hand healed. And so the trap is set and Jesus enters. They ask him, is it legitimate to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus calls this man forward in front of him, in front of the entire assembly. And Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus tells the man with the withered hand to stand up there. He says, stand up. He's not scared. He's not a coward. He's not someone who's running from the, from the conflict. The man stands up. And so with this man standing in front of the synagogue, Jesus says to the Pharisees, 
What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and he heals him. Now, is this man innocent? We don't know. What we do know? What we know in our hearts is that everyone Jesus heals is ultimately guilty. Everyone is guilty. If he's healed you of your sin, it's not because you're innocent. It is because you're guilty. And you and your guilt have reviled him. And you've gone against him. And you've spoken ill of him. And you've denied him. And he still calls you in front of everyone and says, I love this man. I love this woman. I'm going to heal him. I'm going to heal her. What a glorious Savior. He doesn't care about your motives. He loves you. He doesn't care about your lack of innocence. He will heal you. Fourth, they are loyal to Jesus because of his indignation. He's not silent in the face of cowardice and greed. He doesn't ignore injustice. Mark tells us that when he asked his question of the Pharisees, and they sat silent, refusing to answer, Jesus looked down upon them with indignation, grieving on account of the blindness of their heart. He was angry, that's what indignation indicates, and he was grieved. He looked at them and he went, huh, are you really going to be this way? And then he went ahead and did the thing that they didn't want him to do. And he healed the man and he bore in himself all their wrath so that they went out from there and decided we're going to kill him. He bore their indignation and he was indignant himself. He did not cower before them. He didn't fight them. After all, Isaiah said, he will not quarrel nor cry out nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not going to lead an insurrection against them, but he will have nothing to do with them and their, their fake Christianity, their fake religion. Fifth, his disciples are loyal because Jesus loves the little people. And they're little people. Jesus loves the little people and he does not give the time of day to the great people. He loves little people. Now, of course, in this, in this setup involving disciples, the man, the Pharisees, the onlookers, every side in this setup are sinners. Every side. There's not a, a, an innocent side other than Christ. And this man, whatever his role is, he's not innocent. But there is one side that has Christ's compassion and his power, and the other has his indignation. Christ loves the needy. Christ loves the poor. Christ loves you if you're not the kind of person who thinks you have the world by the tail. You know that the world is against you and you feel that you're not the cat's meow in the world. You're probably the kind of person that Jesus would have given his attention to and stood up for. Because he was against the proud. And he was not there for the wealthy. 
And he had nothing to do with those who were the religious leaders who lived to take the widow's houses, as he says the Pharisees do. He wanted nothing to do with that kind of person. And his disciples loved him because he fought that kind of person. Are you a leader? Where are you fighting for the little people? Do you love Jesus? Where are you on the side of the poor? Do you know the God who sent Jesus to be born in a stable? Do you look down on people who live on the street? We need the compassion of Jesus. We need to be excited by this compassionate Savior who loves those who are weak. Jesus, fifth, cannot be intimidated. There is this display of power against him, the Pharisees rising up against him, saying, what is right to do on the Sabbath? And he is not intimidated. There's been a kind of morbid interest in videos from Turkey of dogs attacking people in our home in recent days because of Cheryl being attacked by a group of dogs in Turkey. And there's this fantastic video of, I mean it's terrible, but it's also in some ways brilliant and beautiful, of a, of a little girl walking by herself through the street of a city and suddenly three dogs attack her. And those three dogs knock her to the ground and start biting at her. And it's awful. I mean, it's really awful. The girl's probably eight or nine years old. And then out of the, the corner, the, the left background of the, the, the security camera, you see this little woman run. And she runs out there and she just starts beating on the dogs. She starts punching them. Punch, 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 you know. And she's there punching the dogs and trying to throw them and putting her body between the girl and the dogs. And the dogs just keep coming back and the woman keeps on punching them. And now the dogs are attacking her. And if she gets out of the way, if they get a chance, they go back to the girl. And they're chasing the girl. They're, and the woman will not quit. Now what's really fascinating about this video is that there are big men who show up on the screen. And they go around like this. I mean, literally, just like that. And then you see him go off the screen, and then he comes back with a 12-foot board. Like he's going to kill the dogs with the board. And then he realizes he, the board's not going to help him. Another man comes running in, stops the van, looks, starts running around like every man in the place, every man in the city square is running, trying to find something. The woman is just thinking, fighting. And she fights, and she fights. Finally, the biggest dog runs away. And she fights and fights. This is the glory of Jesus. He fought to the bitter end for you. He fought to the bitter end. Every foe, every enemy, he fought and vanquished for you. Now, if that doesn't breed loyalty, then we don't understand his life. Jesus is always with the downtrodden. Jesus is with the downtrodden before they are with him, even when they're not with him. Jesus raises those he leads by lowering himself. He is not intimidated. He does not force us, but he asks us, will you follow him?
will you lead as he leads? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus, the glory of his life. Thank you, Father, that there was no pride in him, nothing but you. Father, forgive our pride. Forgive my pride. Forgive my running from conflict, Father. Forgive my not caring for the weak and the helpless. Father, give us the mind of Christ. May we not speak about him, but not live as he lived. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.